1: It's Wednesday, April the 7th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I am joined today by three of my colleagues from the political team in the shape of Pat Leahy, Cormac McQuinn and Jennifer Bray. You're all very welcome, but Jennifer, I'm going to go to you first because you've been working on this... Ongoing story of um, sharp debate within various government departments about uh, rolling the mandatory hotel quarantine uh, program, which was launched a couple of weeks ago, out to a much broader range of countries, including major EU countries like France, um, Italy, Germany, and also the United States and We've seen quite a lot of dissension between government ministers and I gather from uh, your report as well between government departments and civil servants in those departments over whether or not this should happen.
0: Yeah um, and you know tensions or whatever is one way to put it another way of thinking about it is it's, it's kind of a hot mess at the moment um, and it's interesting as well like it depends on who you talk to in, in various parts of government if you talk to one half of government uh, they'll tell you there's absolutely no problem and everything's fine and there's nothing to see here and if you talk to Really, the other half, they say it's a complete disaster zone. So like, if I take you back, what happened? The reason why this has become such a massive issue um, and it's a legal issue and it's a logistical issue, it's also a diplomatic issue, um, came when the story or the information that these countries were going to be added to the mandatory quarantine list was leaked uh, to the Irish Independent and uh, that's kind of what sparked this all off. So, you know, firstly, that wasn't supposed to be public knowledge, but the cat was out of the bag, Jeannie's out of the bottle, you know, you move on. That's the first bone of contention. When you move past that then and look at the way it played out last week, the problem was from the perspective of people who were critical of it. And when I say that, I'm talking about Simon Coveney and Leo Varadkar. They were saying, and, and Leo Varadkar was in the 6-1 News and Simon Coveney was, was on various local radio stations, talking about how, you know, there were uh, logistical issues. The first and foremost being, are there enough spaces in these hotels to uh, accommodate uh, any influx of passengers and the increase in passengers that you would expect from these countries, given there is a very large amount of Irish people living in them. Um, and that's the first question. The second question was about people's, European citizens' uh, right to movement uh, between countries. Um, I think there were uh, perhaps issues raised by the Attorney General around the way in which the health officials formulated their advice, whether it was in line with the legislation um, and then a couple of other issues in relation to, I suppose there were things going on behind the scenes. I mean, we heard reports over the weekend about sort of embassies going into meltdown in various European capitals when when news of this broke. Uh, so obviously there's a pressure there as well, a diplomatic pressure. So this kind of played out last week, uh, and and the hope was that there was going to be a meeting between Simon Coveney and Stephen Donnelly, which we I think we talked about and they decided basically to go ahead with rent half of the countries added to the list obviously leaving out the european countries and um and the us so you know the, the plan then throughout the weekend and certainly sort of if you look at the weekend papers and the sunday papers was that it, you know journalists were told obviously by sources that it would be very easy to ramp up capacity in these hotels ramp up there's the ramp up again uh, in these hotels For the various countries, should they be added? Um, Also, you know, what kind of played out towards the latter half of last week and over the weekend was this idea of Simon Coveney and Leo Varadkar once again kind of putting themselves out there and perhaps going against, you know, public health advice by being seen to stop, being seen to kind of stall this thing and and not fully get behind it. Now, they kind of push back very strongly about, or at least their departments do, and say that, you know, what they've been raising are, are very. Uh, valid concerns around capacity. But on the other hand, like I said, you have the Department of Health who say in these countries, there are very uh, concerning uh, variants. There is a spike of COVID cases. Um, some of them are in lockdown. And, you know, if the public health officials recommend this, then it's the duty of the government to get behind it. But what the real problem seems to me to be and what happened was we were told there'd be a series of meetings this week uh, and that they would mainly be on Wednesday and Thursday, uh, and then a meeting was kind of hastily arranged yesterday. Now I think it's because of very basic things like people getting childcare sorted, and you know, you know the way things are now for people trying to to, to organize their work. And eventually, they they scrambled together a meeting yesterday. This was kind of senior government officials, so we're kind of talking about principal officers, but basically the officials in these various departments that are in charge of this. Uh, division and and, and uh, this issue. So you had seven departments chaired by the Department of Taoiseach and um, you had justice in there, enterprise, foreign affairs, uh, obviously defence uh, in, in alongside that uh, and uh, one or two others. And what happened was that they went in, I'm told, these officials and they expected that after the last couple of days and in the interim period between last Thursday and yesterday, that the Department of Health uh, would have formulated kind of answers to questions that arose last Thursday in the meeting between Coveney and Donnelly, potential solutions to that, um, most notably around capacity, but also around strengthening the passenger locator form, because there's been some criticism about tracking people down um, and incorrect information being put on those forms. And what I was told uh, yesterday evening by multiple sources in different departments, so I have no reason to doubt it at this stage, was that there was a real lack of clear answers given uh, by the department of health there was some sympathy actually for the department of health in that this is another massive issue that they have to deal with on top of vaccinations on top of covid on top of all of the things that are going on in health which are usually you know the fires burning everywhere in the department of health at any given time Um, notwithstanding the sympathy i was really surprised um to hear I think the level of acrimony, it's usually when officials meet, it's quite dull. <laughs> and, you know, it's just very, you know, we would do this, and do that. And this just sounds like it went really, really badly. And that's the way one person put it to me is really badly and a lack of basic and fundamental uh, answers. Now, I haven't actually heard anything um, back from the Department of Health. I mean, I have no doubt that if they did respond, that they would say that, you know, this is a process and that yesterday's meeting was the first of many this week and that you can't take from one meeting that nothing has been done and that, you know, stuff is happening behind scenes and no doubt about that. But we are kind of in this situation now whereby the tensions, even at official level, are very evident um, now. And so it doesn't really bode that well. So where that leaves us is a couple more meetings this week. And there was a suggestion there might be an incorporated cabinet meeting this week. That seems to be off the cards a little bit now. The cabinet is due to meet, I think, next week to discuss this. And... The way it was put to me was there's no clear path in sight to an agreement, but there absolutely must be an agreement. And was, one person put it to me was that the adults will have to come into the room and knock some heads together um, because the public are absolutely fed up watching this kind of play out. So that's that's where we're at at the moment.
1: Right, Pat, there's, two, there's a lot, of, awful lot in there, but it's likely there's two main things that strike me about what uh, Jen quite correctly describes, I think, as a as a hot mess, one is that um, some of the reasons for this conflict go back as she says to the the whole question of why responsibility for this mandatory quarantine was landed on the already incredibly overloaded desk of the Department of Health rather than some other department, be it justice or or whoever whoever it might have been, that clearly clearly didn't help, and the other one is that the arguments being made um, against the quarantine um apart from the logistic one. We're just very illogical. Um, didn't make very much sense and we're open to all kinds of criticism. Our colleague Harry McGee on Saturday had a real go with Simon Coveney for his essentially arguing that Irish people should be treated differently from non-Irish people when they arrived and the countries where there are a lot of Irish people should be treated differently because they're Irish people and all those kinds of things and, you know, he, he suggested some people have said that, you know, there's borderline implicit racism in some of the things that were said last week. A, com- a complete shambles both in terms of the internal organisation of how to deal with this important question, perhaps a suspicion that the Fine Gael ministers in particular always thought this was just a piece of tokenism and then it came around and it, it bit them on the ass. Um, and and a, a complete lack of logic in saying, for example, that there are legal questions about applying this to EU countries when Austria has been on the list for weeks already. I'm struggling to see where the question is <laughs> here, <are> you. <laughs> <laughs> it was a question mark after I think you should already.
2: Say, I think you should say what you think, Hugh, rather than just tossing out the questions to us, making us answer them. <laughs> um, for what it's worth, I think your diagnosis is correct. I think it has been uh, a bit of a shambles. Of course, these sort of discussions go on in government and it's our job to shed a light on what is happening behind closed doors but seldom do people in government make our job so easy because this debate within government is effectively happening in full view of the public. I think there is a legitimate discussion about the necessity for hotel quarantining at all. After all, everybody who are the vast majority of people that are going into hotel quarantining already have a negative test, But that decision has already been made by government. And you're right that there are many people within government who viewed this as simply window dressing, didn't really see the need for uh, this additional layer of quarantine security, which, after all, is not being followed anywhere else in Europe. But at the same time, they were terrified of the political consequences of uh, a further outbreak that might be, or a fourth wave, that might be linked to people failing to observe the, exist, the pre-existing law on quarantine, which is, after all, you were supposed to quarantine in your own house. So that decision having been made, it's difficult to see what, you know, logical differences can be, be made between the various, uh, the various countries. And it is likely, it seems to me, that we will end up in a position where these countries are added to the quarantine list. Now, there is a suggestion around this morning report, I think, in the Irish Independent, which seems to me to make some sense and maybe uh, the path towards um, a compromise, which is that the quarantine period for people who already had a negative test would be shortened so that a second negative test, maybe within five days, could uh, could allow them to leave the hotel quarantine. But it is quite clear that the Department of Health and the Minister for Health are not for turning on it. They are not going to revise their view that it is a public health necessity that incoming travellers from a variety of these countries, notably Italy and Germany and, uh, and France, should be subjected to the same quarantine precautions that other people from, ha- from areas of new outbreaks are being subjected to. And if they don't change their position, and I see no signs of it, and I am told that they won't, then it's hard to see how the government could hold, as a whole could hold out uh, against that position, whatever the embassies uh, around, uh, around Europe are saying. And and if that is true, if we're going to get to this position anyway, then presumably the sooner we get there, the better, or the sooner we get there, the safer. So I'm not sure, and, you know, Jen has painted a pretty comprehensive picture of what's going on behind the scenes there. I'm not sure exactly how the path to the extension of quarantine regulations will go this week, but... I don't see how, if the Department of Health maintain their position, that the rest of government can stand
1: against it. Cormac, and I promise I'll put a question mark at the end of of this sentence. The reality is, as we remarked on on this in previous podcasts, that we're in this, certainly in the view of the Department of Health and Neffet, we're in this dangerous valley, I suppose, between variants still buzzing around the world and and surges happening in Europe. Uh, we're still waiting for the real mass rollout of the vaccine and we're going to talk about that in a minute and hopefully that'll happen in the next couple of months. So it really might just be a question of this particular strategy only being needed for a couple of months because you're writing in today's newspaper about uh, potential um, vaccine passports or vaccine visas or whatever you may want to call them that would Give people the right and would be perhaps validated at EU level and give people the right, they might have something on their phone that shows that they've received a vaccine. And that would kind of obviate the need, would it, for something like this mandatory quarantine?
3: Sure, that I suppose would be one way out of it. I mean, it's, it's probably worth cast your mind back to the, the circumstances in which the decision to bring in mandatory hotel quarantining was made. It, it came at the end of January when uh, cases were very, very high, including the, the variant from from the UK was was becoming dominant, and and the government had to be seen to be doing something, uh, but in not bringing it in across the board for all countries. I suppose they ended up with the the worst of both worlds. They get the criticism from the opposition that that there's a lot of countries with, with high levels of cases off the list, and then they get this difficulty when they do try to expand the, the countries. But, but you're right, this idea of a, a vaccine passport or what the European Union is calling a digital green certificate um, is seen as a pathway towards opening up travel but also opening up other parts of society uh, as the vaccination uh, process ramps up um you the, the most famous case i suppose is in israel where where they have they've kind of got two systems one is a green pass for for people who've been fully vaccinated or have had uh, covid-19 in recent times and are therefore naturally immune and they can they can use this pass to go to cinemas to go to restaurants to to go to sports events uh, to the gym things like that but they also have a vaccine certificate which is geared towards international travel um and again it's for the same same cohorts of people uh, who have been vaccinated and uh, they uh, Israel have been doing deals with some countries uh, to allow travel to open up uh, Greece and Cyprus are, are two examples of that where, where Israelis who've been vaccinated can travel. Um, but the European Union then, the Commission last month, announced this digital green passport or digital green certificate idea, which they would like to see brought in to open up travel within the 27 member states of the, the European Union. Um, it's, in, it's in its early stages. It's been considered by the, the the various member states. The Department of Health is looking into it here yet another a uh, job for Stephen Donnelly's department to do, uh, but that that's that's seen as as a way of opening up travel in the EU. But uh, the tarnished Leo Varadkar has been speaking in recent days of of a certificate, a vaccine certificate or pass that would be similar to the to the Israeli one for for accessing uh, businesses and services. And um, he said that combined with with rapid antigen testing, it it could off, offer a pathway for resuming hospitality, live events um events in the arts uh in the in the months ahead. And um he also spoke in, in recent days then of, of it allowing more more freedoms for people who've been vaccinated. So it would be perhaps be the, the most powerful example of what the government have been calling a vaccine bonus uh for for people who have had both jobs or when Johnson & Johnson arrives, the the one the one job um you know and would would allow them to do a lot more things. Um, we with, with it's very early days of development. Uh, senior officials are currently uh, developing a policy on, on vaccine certificates and how to how to respond to the to EU proposal on on travel. And um, that that we're expecting we're expecting those proposals to go to government later later in April.
1: Yeah, I do wonder, Jenna. Looking you know looking at the Israeli example, and given that we now have moved to a a purely age based uh, rollout of vaccines, there could be great opportunities for classic rock targeted at baby boomers and over 65s in the three arena in, in June and July. There'll be lots of uh, there'll be lots of grey hairs heading down there for a bop uh, while while the rest of the population are still trapped at home. be Boom time for Phil Collins.
0: <laughs> I would love to go to that. Are you kidding me? Yeah, no, you're right. And you know what? More power to them. I mean, everybody has suffered a lot in the last year, but I think one of the groups that have felt the, the greatest sense of, of isolation have been people of that age uh, and people... You know, I think beyond uh six, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighty, um, and so yeah, we might see that. But I think if you're if you're looking at Israel and you're comparing kind of, you know, what's happening globally in terms of these passes and in terms of, uh, of what Cormac calls the the vaccine bonus, it, they're not without their problems, and this applies both in America where they're trying to roll it out in different states to varying degrees of success. And also Israel, like I was reading a piece um, last night, uh, I think it was in the New York Times, very laddie of me, but um, it was from a writer in Israel who was talking about her experience of being vaccinated and having the green pass. And she was saying that in the beginning, when they first rolled it out, uh, pretty much everywhere asked for it. But now, basically restaurants, uh, bars, she's been to gigs, she's been to Less and less, so so I think it only works. It only seems to work for a certain amount of time, um, before it becomes kind of irrelevant. Uh, but definitely one of the things, one of the benefits of it, um, is this idea of basically encouraging people to get the vaccine who maybe otherwise would not have got the vaccine. Um, and there was really interesting poll, uh, out uh, in the states, uh, this morning which showed that there, you know, I think it was something like thirty two percent of Republicans. Still don't want to get the vaccine, um, and how twenty five percent of healthcare workers, you know, still had concerns around it. So there is still, if you look at the countries that are are really far ahead in their vaccination program, the the problem they come to after a certain amount of vaccinations, usually around, you know, fifty percent of the population, is that you encounter this group of people who have always been there but who do not want to get vaccinated, and this can be quite a large number of people. I think it's around a million. Uh, in Israel um, who just don't want to come forward. So I think like when you when you're going down the road of vaccine certs and you're looking at green passes and you're thinking about gigs and everything, it's it seems to be useful for a certain period, useful for a certain number of people. After that, there's problems in the implementation of it. But beyond that, the bigger problem seems to be people who have vaccine hesitancy. And, and you know, that'll be an issue for us too hopefully, like I'm not saying hopefully it'll be an issue, but hopefully we get to that stage of, of the discussion sooner rather than later.
1: Yeah, it's funny in a, in a perverse kind of a way, I wonder whether the slow rollout and even things like the scandals over the Beacon Clinic and the Coom, in a way sort of help um, suppress vaccine hesitancy, Pat, because that, I mean, the, the reason for that being that everybody wants it. And people get pissed off when other people get it ahead of them. It's sort of like these things like, you know, trendy new uh, tech platforms like Clubhouse or even back in the day when Gmail was rolled out first and you had to be invited to get it and it made it something that people wanted. Maybe that's kind of working okay with the vaccines because actually the polling shows that vaccine hesitancy is much less of a problem right now in Ireland than it is in a country like France, for example. Yeah, it's a real issue in some countries, vaccine hesitancy, but we don't
2: have that here. I think we're all gagging to get it. And, and I think once the rollout accelerates, and I guess we can talk about that in a minute, I think it will change things quite quickly. So we're now at the stage where, you know, lots of people of my generation, their parents have, uh, have got it because they're in their, you know, they're in their seventies, they're in their eighties, their parents have got it. And that has, completely, I see it, my own parents have completely altered their mood and altered their view. Now they're still impatient to see their grandchildren, to get uh, to get out and about. But once that begins to happen, you know, further down the age cohorts, I think we underestimate how, you know, how quickly the mood around all this will change. And that inevitably flows into politics. If you see what has happened in the UK. And we are significantly behind the UK, but we can reasonably anticipate those same sort of movements once the rollout begins to gather pace over the coming months. And, you know, we see people in the UK looking forward to, you know, the reopening of social and commercial life. So the envy that we have of them in that regard is going to become only more acute in the coming weeks. But then our turn will come. And that, I think, will transform the national mood and um, for the for the government the important thing is that it fulfills its frequently espoused promises of this big acceleration because i think if uh, if it doesn't i think the the you know the political consequences for the government if they're seen to have failed at the rollout of the vaccine are seen to have made up bags of it. I think the political
1: consequences internally and externally could be absolutely ruinous for them. So Pat, you know, the numbers are due to ramp up right now and enormously over April, May and June with really large numbers in June. The numbers are increasing, but they're still loaded quite towards the end of that. Um, Is the government completely clear with us now about how many people it expects to have vaccinated by the end of June?
2: It's clear on the big targets and the far off targets. So, you know, Michal Martin was saying, you know, in in his announcement last week, close to three million doses administered by the end of May, five million doses by early July, six million doses by the end of July. They've consistently said a million doses a month in April, May, June. That's been the target for some time now. Now, in recent days, the million doses, they still say a million doses a month on average for April, May, June, but the April figure is a little bit below. So that's 860,000 doses in April. And with the balance made up in May and June to give you in excess of 3 million doses over these three months. And actually, you know, I've been, I was looking yesterday for some more detail on the exact numbers of vaccines that are uh, uh, that are expected over the coming weeks they're very reticent uh, about that and they, the the government won't say the HSE won't say what the exact schedule of vaccine deliveries is to be in either the short term or the long term but primetime did some clever work on this last night going to look at the swedish figures where the government have said what they are uh, what they are due to receive over the next couple of months, and uh, and extrapolating from those what the Irish figures would be because EU uh, the EU vaccine programme, of course, is done by virtue of vaccines per head of population. And the figures that they came up with, which were more or less confirmed by Stephen Donnelly on primetime last night, was a million doses in April, 1.2 million in May, and 1.8 million uh, in June. Now, that's four million doses altogether over the, uh, over the three months. The question is, can they get those into arms? And they are very reticent, government and HSE, very reticent to say, well, how many doses are you going to do? Will you get this week? And how many doses will you do this week? Instead, they only say in arrears what they got. And, uh, and what they have done. But if you think about the scale of the acceleration that has to take place for them to reach their own targets, it's something like this. So last Friday, Paul Reid, the HSE chief, was kind of proudly telling us, as well he might, that they'd done 30,000 doses on Good Friday. I asked HSE how many they'd done on Saturday, Sunday, Monday. They, they wouldn't tell me. Now, 30,000 doses in a day is obviously a very big number. But they will need to do that every single day and more if they're going to reach a million a month. The question is, do they have the capacity to ramp that up? They keep telling us that they do. The evidence we will see ourselves in a week, 10 days. And I was writing about this this morning in the paper that, you know, the the time for the long promised ramp up, as everybody calls it, is here. So we will know very shortly. In a week's time, we'll be in there we'll be at the middle of April. We will be able to see then if they have accelerated the uh, the rollout of administering the vaccine in tandem with the accelerated deliveries, which have already begun to happen. HSE insists that it will, but it doesn't give us vaccine per day targets or even deliveries over the next. Uh, week or 10 days those targets to enable us to uh to see for ourselves but we will know soon enough
1: I mean on one level it's completely understandable isn't it Jen it's um they're terrified of not meeting the targets and then being beaten around the place as 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 Pat says in his in his piece today and they've they've had a defense up until now which is that they haven't had control over supply, and there have been problems, as we know, with the EU, EU supply. If that's coming to an end, and that is a bit of an if still, because we are still relying to a large extent on AstraZeneca, and we know that they've failed to meet their commitments a lot over the last few months. Also, there's a significant reliance on Johnson & Johnson, which is really just coming on stream later this month as well, as a huge component of the of that big June number, which Pat talked about. But it seems to me that the the real number that's really going to matter now, kind of as Pat suggests, is if a difference, if a gap emerges between the number of jobs that are coming into the country every week and the number of jobs that are going into people's arms. Because if that gap emerges, well, that would be a clear failure of government.
0: It would be a clear failure of government. There's absolutely no doubt about it, especially when you consider the sacrifices people have made and people have done their bit to... to a very large extent um, over the last year. And this is the government's time and the health service's time to get it right. Um, So obviously there's a huge uh, pressure there and rightly so. Um, And I think that there was a couple of things um, that would give you pause when you consider the next couple of weeks. You know, what we've been told in previous weeks has been really quite simplistic in many ways, that we'll have a million a month uh, effectively uh, through April, May and June what we are learning now i suppose and and pat mentioned mark cockland's excellent report on primetime last night that report also made it very clear that a lot of these vaccines are heavily backloaded so we're we're looking at the vast majority of jobs being given um in towards the end of may and in june um and that is something that would give you a cause for concern because you know, we've seen already issues in relation to Johnson and Johnson uh, being able to to um. Oh, I hate the phrase ramp up, but we need to find another phrase. Accelerate, uh, uh, their output, um, in the US and other countries. And like you said, we've seen uh, issues with AstraZeneca, and those issues are still playing out. You know, I think there is a meeting later on, uh, or or a press conference of the EMA to talk about this issue of of blood clots again, and that that issue is still very much a live one. Um, and various countries are trying to grapple with it. So we're not out of the woods in terms of the distribution of that vaccine yet. Uh, and like I said, there could be any mariah uh, issues and bumps along the road. And actually, I fully expect that there would be. Um, I, do, I think it's kind of unrealistic to expect that everything will run smoothly up until the end of June. And like I said, the, the, the issue is if they're going to meet their targets. And if you look at the delivery forecasts, um, they really have a lot of work to do towards those last six weeks of this next kind of uh, uh, next three months. Um, and I think what they're going to have to do uh, is in June, somewhere around possibly 400,000 um, doses a week, which is an awful lot. And that's when you really, that's when the pinch really hits, you know, like are there enough vaccinators there? The mass vaccination centres, uh, you know, the staffing of that um, and and all of those different issues around it. Um, the, the equipment that you need, um, the various medical equipment, etc., and and it's right now it's a question mark. You know we don't actually know. We have to wait and see. We're being told it's fine, uh, and it's it's a waiting game, and it's 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 an anxious <laughs> waiting game for many people.
2: I think we will know before June. Obviously, as Jen says, four hundred thousand a week in June is a massive target, but the target for April is more modest, but still represents huge acceleration. From what has previously been achieved, so my point at the piece today is that we will know very soon whether that acceleration is building at uh, at a sufficient pace. So the target is to do almost a million jabs in uh, in April. That is as many jabs as has been done over the last three months. So, in other words, you are looking at uh, an uh, an acceleration by three times. We need to do we need to do things three times as fast. As they were doing them over the uh, over the previous months, and we will see whether that is happening quite shortly. Obviously, if they hit those targets by you know the middle and the latter half of this month, that doesn't mean that they will that the acceleration can continue uh, at a, at a sufficient pace to get one point two million in May, one point eight million in June. But uh, if it, if it doesn't happen in the first half and the first part of this month, then you would probably say that the chances of a much greater acceleration happening over the coming months are significantly diminished.
0: There was one thing in Pat's piece that I had forgotten about that happened in the last couple of days, and that was Leo Varadkar promising all a surprise. And I hope those words don't come back to haunt him. You know, I hope it's a good surprise and not a bad surprise because a bad surprise would be very, very bad indeed politically for him. And I just, it's just something that stood out in your piece. Uh, it sort of it sort of felt a bit menacing almost. There'll be a surprise in the summer. It better be good. Yeah, I don't know saying. if I
1: want a surprise. It was a surprise <laughs> to the teachers last week, Cormac. I mean, all of everything that Pat and, and Jen have been saying there completely to my mind explains why there was a change in the protocol for the rollout uh, and that it isn't actually Uh, the the first reason for it is not because that people in their 50s are, are, are slightly more at risk than people in their 40s. It's to simplify the system, to make it as fast as possible, not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good, not to be faffing around trying to find all the people who work in the education system. Just roll this damn thing out as quickly as possible.
3: Yeah, and you'd have to suspect there might be a bit of uh, consciousness of the the impatience of people who weren't in the the previously prioritised groups, like the teachers, you know, to to get the the jabs in in their arms. I'm I'm not sure that the importance of this vaccine rollout uh, going well for the government can be overestimated uh, in the months ahead, you know. And I I think yes, we have had. We've had calls from the the teaching unions that that they should they should be reprioritised. There is this motion down at the at the various teacher conferences uh, suggesting that they they may even take industrial action if the, if they don't get their way. I think the the chances of that are are quite slim, given that the school year is dwindling and uh, you know they should in theory have had their vaccinations by September, but. But it is it it does emphasise the emotions around the the vaccine rollout and, and various groups that that uh, feel that they should they should get them. We've had the, the special needs assistance with the guardian, with childcare workers, uh, but it all just you know the pressure in general eases for the government that this vaccine rollout uh, goes well over the next three months and and it has to as well because. There are there are new pressures coming on the the horizon for the government. Uh, we we come to the end of June and the various financial supports, uh, the employment wage subsidy scheme, the the pandemic unemployment payment, they're all due to expire on the end, at the end of June. Now now they'll surely be expanded expanded or extended in some way. But if but it, these are difficult political decisions coming down the line, and unless people are vaccinated and have the possibility of returning to work and businesses have the possibility of reopening. Uh, those those decisions become very very difficult indeed for government. So it's it so much depends on this vaccine rollout uh, going smoothly, and uh, it, it could either be a very an easier time for the government if if that happens, or or things could get very bad indeed.
1: Pat, I want to ask you about one other non COVID related matter before we go, because there's been violence in the streets of Northern Ireland for the last several days. Um, there is increased agitation in the unionist community. Um, uh, withdrawal of cooperation with the um, chief constable of the uh, PSNI by the by the unionist parties. Um, how much concern is there in government circles in Dublin about this? And are there any moves to try and address this problem in any way? Not
2: that I am aware of. There is certainly concern about it, but as per what Cormac says, there the overwhelming priority and the subject that will get 90% of the government's attention over the coming weeks and months is the rollout of the vaccine. I think that looking at the events in the north it seems to me a couple of things are coming together some of which are entirely beyond the government's control other uh, others that it may have a uh, it, it may have some input or influence into. I mean clearly that the trigger for some of this is, you know, in the the immediate events of the Bobby story, uh, uh, the, the decision not to prosecute anybody on the Bobby story funeral, which has enraged some elements in Unionism and uh, and and loyalism right up to uh, right up to the level of of government. Um, uh, but mm. the, the the protocol and its operation, even though lots of its operation has been suspended unilaterally by the British government, uh, is a festering sore for for many Unionists and Loyalists. Not just, you know, because of its practical uh, effects, which, you know, I suppose have been mitigated to some degree by the by the the unilateral extension of the uh, extension of the grace period but rather because of what it says about the north's relationship with the rest of the UK and the willingness of the british government um you know to accept barriers to trade between the north and the rest of uh, of the UK uh, as a price for getting the brexit that they wanted <clears throat> my view has always been that you know the real fear in um the real fear in in unionism is not so much you know perfidy by dublin or expansionist ambitions of the of the republic um you know living with that in the unionist mindset living with that is part of being uh, a unionist on, uh, on the island of, uh, of Ireland. The real fear in, uh, in unionism and loyalism, and I think perhaps we're seeing some reaction to this deep-seated fear now, the real fear has always been betrayal by London. And I think at the heart of some of the, some of the, the, the loyalist reaction uh, in recent weeks, has been a perception that that that, again, that has happened again with regard to the protocol. I think there's not an awful lot really that uh, that the the government in in Dublin can do, but certainly the uh, the drumbeats for uh, a United Ireland and the constant calls for a unity referendum uh, that we hear, uh, though perfectly. Legitimate in and of themselves don't take place in a vacuum. They have um, they have an effect north of the border amongst uh, unionists or sections of unionism and loyalism. I think all that is part of what is uh, what is what is contributing to the uh, to the unrest there. So that's a long winded way of uh, of answering your question, Hugh. And th- to be honest, I see little that the, the Dublin government. Can do uh, about um, about this even in uh, even in the short term, even if the somewhat more conciliatory and incremental approach of this administration, in the shape of the shared island unit, as an alternative to calls for border poles and and so forth, is an attempt, I think, um, by the government to. Uh, you know to 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 address to some degree at least those fears in unionism and loyalism as to what impact it's having i, I, I on on unionism and loyalism uh, it, it, it seems at this stage at least uh, to be negligible
1: well we will return to this subject as i say in the in the days and the weeks ahead but we will leave it Therefore, today, thanks to to Pat McCormick to and to Jen and to our producers, Suzanne Brennan and JJ Vernon, our engineer. We will be with you again very soon. Remember that you can email us with your thoughts and questions at politicspodcasts at IrishTimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.